Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July the 29th, 2019. This is episode 2480 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, we got it going for you today because it's a listener feedback show, which means that you guys, one way or another, contributed to almost everything on the show today by sending me emails or chatting with me on MeWe or something like that. Here's what we got today. I got a great question just this morning, and I, I'm going to crowdsource it a little bit. I'm going to give you some of my ideas, but this is what I'm really encourage you guys to uh, consider commenting on the blog about. We don't get as many blog comments as we used to, I think, because most of the... Uh, Social media discussion type stuff has moved to either Facebook or MeWe or Twitter or something like that. So um, this one is on building a time capsule for a child to open at the age of 18. Kiddo's fixing to turn one. Mom got a great idea, sent Uncle a letter, and Uncle's the one that sent it to us. Hey, put let's get stuff put together for a time capsule for the kiddo to open at 18, which will be the year like 2036 or something like that. Pretty crazy when you think about it. A listener chimes in on EDC and bug out bags and everyday use of them and how they pay off even when it's not something that really we would constitute as an emergency, which is definitely a case we've made for EDC and bug out bags in the past. Uh, the Democrats and Republicans can't agree on everything, except when it comes down to it, apparently they agree on, well, everything. Really? Yeah, really. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, the next thing I have for you today is something I've always said especially the young people trying to come up in the world. I've always said if you want to move up, move over. And what I mean by that is if you are at a place in your your walk, in your career, where there's nothing else to learn in your job, you can't learn anything else, and any significant promotion financially is way off, the best thing you can do at that point is to look somewhere else and move over and up at the same time, either to get a promotion, to learn new stuff, or to get a raise, or sometimes all three. Apparently, somebody decided to actually do a study on this. Apparently, there's studies on everything, and it turns out, <laughs> I'm right. They, well, it's now I'm right. Like, like, it wasn't true for the last ever, but we'll talk about that today, and, and how that should be a strategy, especially in the early to midpoint of most careers today. If you're not doing that, you're not maximizing your opportunities. Um Guy thinks he should cash in his 401k. I'm going to tell you why you almost never should. Not always, but almost never should. And maybe not here. Container gardening. A uh, person's doing container gardening, and they want to know about my thoughts on reusing the soil from your container gardens. I'll talk about that. Uh, then we have a real estate question about location and what we can learn from people making a, a location-based decision. Uh, this came in on me. We chat this morning. Uh, guys moving to Florida. It has two totally different options within his budget that have to do mostly with location and therefore size of property. And I think that's a good way to look at things from the critical analysis and critical thinking viewpoint. How can we get what we really want or most of what we really want, and where do we make the compromises and why? Because real estate's just one of those examples that is uh, kind of a major example of that. When you buy a piece of property, generally you're, you're stuck with it for a while, And um, it has a huge impact on your life because you go there and you live there every day, right? So, uh, but the the concept itself, we can 
take outside of real estate. So we're going to talk about all of that and more in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today number one today is RidgeWallet.com. Uh, Ridge Wallet is the minimalist wallet that you want to have in your life. You really do. It is a metal, little metal wallet that opens up. You can slide stuff into like your credit cards and things like that. And what it ends up doing is making you kind of pare down what you carry. And everything you actually need is always there. The next thing it does is it protects all your credit cards. Now they're all embedded with RFID chips from identity theft uh, by shielding them. And it just is a better overall solution. My life is a little bit better in the last two years because I've switched to the Ridge Wallet. If you give it a try, you might feel the same way. You can learn more at RidgeWallet.com. You can get discount on all the different options Ridge Wallet offers and some of their other products at RidgeWallet.com if you're an MSB member. Next up today, JM Bullion. I've been saying the same thing, and it's probably never going to change. And I've been saying it for 11 years. When it comes to silver and gold, I'm not one of these people like, oh, the dollar's going to implode. Go put all your money in gold and just hold on to it and wait and become rich someday. How's that working out for you if you started doing that like, oh, I don't know, 20 years ago? Um, what I've always said is it makes sense to dollar cost average and over time invest about 5% to 10% of your net wealth into silver and gold as a wealth assurance program and as a way to anonymously hand down wealth to your heirs or to anonymously transfer wealth to anyone you choose at any time you choose, because silver and gold are just the best thing in the world for that. Now, um, the key is that the reason we invest in silver and gold is it's all the same. If you buy an American silver eagle, it's an American silver eagle, it's an American silver eagle. And unless it's some kind of counterfeit, which you do have to watch out for, but not if you deal with any reputable silver house, um, then it's the same. So paying more for the same doesn't make sense. JM Bullion has some of the best pricing there is, plus they do free shipping, plus they give a discount to MSB members. So JM Bullion's where you should be looking to buy your silver and gold. It's why, where I buy my silver and gold, and if you give them a shot to earn your business, you'll probably keep using them. Check them out, jmbullion.com. No one gets a discount for people on silver and gold. The margins are too thin. I've got you one. If you're an MSB member and spending at least 300 bucks, you can get a discount on silver and gold through the MSB And the sponsor's been with us now for like eight years, jambullion.com. Uh, next up, let's go ahead and kind of uh, dive into this. Before we do, though, I just want to remind you again, we are getting really close to episode 2500, and I would love you to be part of it. All you got to do is call the jerk line, 877-644-1345. I'll say that again a little bit slower in case you need to write it down, 877-644-1345. 45. Call the jerk line. Tell us how your life's a little bit better because of TSP and our communities and subcommunities, people you've met from us, whatever. And if you don't mind, throw in a little Jack, you're a jerk because I started out a long time ago saying you'd never tell me I was a jerk because you paid off your debt or because you were prepared or whatever. And then people started doing it as a joke. And so that's how we're going to take things for episode 2500. It'll be one for the history books. You want to be part of it. Call the jerk line, 877-644-1345. So let's start out with this, this first one. I thought this was really cool, and I feel like even maybe retroactively, it's something maybe I need to do for my grandkids. And we do have stuff for them. Um, we put away piggy banks for them every year, and my wife puts little notes and things in them. Uh, but this was formalizing it a little bit more. And I think, um, you know, when it comes to preparedness, building preparedness into our kids is important, and... I feel that like we've lost so many young people in their late teens 
And maybe if they knew people cared about them, we would have lost less. So it's just in that in of itself, it is a survival topic. And um, I think it helps people kind of center their focus on young people as parents and, and, and what have you, but also as uncles and, and, and things like that as well, um, to have to kind of go on record with something for their future. And so Rob sent me this, and it says, Hey, Jack, what small items would you place in a time capsule? Details, my brother and sister-in-law recently had a baby. Emily, my niece, is turning one next month. They are making a time capsule for her to be opened on her 18th birthday. Uh, and I'd be interested in your thoughts for items to include in the time capsule. They have made suggestions such as advice for an 18-year-old child who is one-year-old now, predictions of what 2036 will look like, small items, pictures, or newspaper clippings from 2018, 2019, Uh, I'm very curious on your take on any items and words of wisdom for the future. Thanks, Rob. Uh, I, first of all, I just want to say I think this is cool. I think this is incredibly cool. I think maybe one of the things that might be a good idea for you and for everybody that, that's involved with this or anybody doing this would be maybe to put some of your your advice, your stories, and your thoughts on video. And we live in a world today where it's so dad gone easy to shoot video with a phone and hit upload to YouTube, uh, we don't really know what the future holds for all that cloud-based video, do we? I mean, we really don't. I'm not talking about end of the world or anything either. I'm just saying, you know, might someday YouTube decide videos that haven't been watched in 10 years um, that are taking up valuable resources to exist need to go away? Uh, we don't really know, right? So somebody on MeWe, because I, I kind of sourced this on MeWe as well, said not only do video, but you know, put them on a USB drive. And so I think that's valid. Though, will USB be a valid format in 2036? My guess is it won't be very hard to figure out a way to get data off a of USB. But just think about all of the things that people took for granted is going to be always be around that don't work anymore. You know, I, I was I was at Walmart this weekend, don't ask why, but I was. And I went by the electronics section and I was I like I was like I wonder if there is even a CD left in Walmart. Turns out there isn't. It wasn't even a CD in Walmart. So I, I think if you had a CD right now, you wouldn't not be able to find a way to get data off of it, but like I'm sitting here looking at two MacBooks, neither of which have a CD-ROM player in them. Uh, I do have uh, the ability to do that on the PC that I, I produce the show on. I'm just saying, like, some of this stuff may go away. So I think that maybe it would be a good idea to put it on something like a thumb drive, but then whoever's uh, caretaking it might want to think about if formats start to change, maybe move it to whatever the newest, latest, and greatest format is. Um I think a great idea, we just talked about buying silver and investing in silver, a silver round with her birth year. Um, maybe several different uh, nations, the, the gold back, you know, the government backed silver, like Canada has some pretty cool stuff. I think they're doing the, the orcas right now. They're like a two ounce uh, US, gold, U.S. silver eagle from their birth year. I think that would be a really cool thing because um, it's a store of value, but it also anchors them back to a time. Um, Maybe something from someone who's already not here. You know, if you have something maybe that will belong to a grandparent of yours, so maybe their great-grandparent or something that you are willing to pass on, 
and the story that goes with it, because the one thing we don't know is will we be there in 2036? I mean, we could be young and healthy and expect everything to work out, but we could be gone. And that family heirloom that you want to pass down, maybe the story isn't there with it unless you do it now. So that would be uh, something else that I think would be interesting. Maybe just, you know, right now, you, a lot of stuff that's kind of dried up and blown away uh, from the world, like, oh, I don't know, the little things that go inside a 45 record or something like that, uh, they're really easy to find. You know, stuff like that. Stuff that maybe you grew up with that was already gone by the time that you did this for them, and how far back in history will it be by the time they look at it? And, I mean, I wouldn't go overboard with that, but something like that might be interesting, uh, along with a message about don't get too attached to material things, because the, especially there was like if there was something you thought was so important when you were a kid, that, like, today, not only do you not care about it, nobody cares about it, Man, 18-year-olds have this, they're stuck in that whole, you know, everybody's going to be there type mindset and how important things are that are bullshit. So having something they can look at and go, this is nothing, but yet this was so important to people might be uh, valuable. Somebody in um, MeWe said Pic a picture of them outside of their home. I think that's, that's totally valid. I'm thinking maybe a bunch of pictures on a thumb drive, and again, with the caveat of, Whoever's the caretaker needs to think about, is that their thumb drive going to be a valid thing? Even if it's valid, like that might be something you want to open the time capsule yourself and kind of redo, like move the data to a new device, maybe make a backup of it or two. Um, drives are cheap because who knows what could cause a failure over that period of time. But here was one of the things that I have a picture of that I really think might be a, a cool picture. I planted a tree when we bought our first uh, house together, Dorothy and I, a pecan tree. My son wasn't a year old. He was like eight. But I have a picture of him standing next to that tree. And had we stayed in that house, I think it would be an amazing thing for him to be able to look at that picture at 18 and see how the tree's grown compared to himself. And if we had stayed there, my plan was to take a picture every year. We ended up selling a house. But I think something like that, something you know, with them alongside something that's going to change, I think would be really good because, again, it shows this this pattern of advancement and change and that things really do change. Because I think that, again, I'm not, I'm not putting down everybody that's 18 years old, obviously, but I do think 18-year-olds get stuck in this concept of the now to the exclusion of tomorrow. And they really believe that a lot of things that are not important are important. And I think it takes people... It's a varying thing on how long it takes people to let go of that. But I've met people that are you know close to 30 that are still kind of stuck in that high school mindset of this thing today is so important. And you're like, no, no, it's not. It's really not. You know, I mean, um, I don't know, maybe a picture of Sasquatch carrying her permanent record. <laughs> I don't know. That's an old joke from long ago uh, on the show, but it... It's kind of where I'm coming from with this. Um, that Anything that can show the passage of time to the exclusion of over-worrying about the now would be useful. And I'd be interested in anything else you guys could throw into that. Um, I definitely like the ideas of letters to them. And, 
you know, speculation about what 2036 is going to be like is great because you're probably going to be wrong. Um, and I would end my letter with, I probably got a lot of this wrong. And as you look forward to the next 17 years, understand you probably will too. So all we can do is the best that we can do in our lives and accept that change is constant. That would be something like maybe I would finish a letter like that with. So just uh, just some thoughts on that. Again, I'd love to hear what you guys have to say about it. Next up, Steve sent me an email. says, Jack, I don't remember the last time there was an episode on EDC bags and their contents, but the vehicle preparedness episode made me think about it. Here's the majority of my EDC loadout, which has come in handy several times, including once when my mom was in the hospital and I had my kids with me. The only thing I added that day was a tablet. Uh, otherwise, everything was as I carry the bag for uh, shift every day. Uh, the kids told me they were hungry, so I got some extra small. I got them each small ravioli and some fruit snacks out of my bag. Uh, they were thirsty, so I used my change to buy a bottle of water and flavored it with a flavor packet. Again, he carries. Uh, when they got bored, I gave them my tablet and a set of headphones and used the hospital Wi-Fi to keep them entertained with Netflix. Everyone else looked at me like, who is this guy? But the kids were well-behaved and well-taken care of. Sorry to ramble, and I don't blame you if this is too long to include in a show segment. Thanks for what you do, and keep up the great work, Steve. And here's his EDC loadout bag, daily, uh, carry. Uh, 550 cord, zip ties, uh, Bic lighter, duct tape wrapped around an old gift card, a multi-tool, phone charger, external battery with extra cables and headphones, snacks, stuff you'd normally eat, then replenish, uh, small microwavable meals, change for vending machines and parking meters, a sewing kit, spare utensils, drink flavor packets and instant coffee, tea, etc., uh, reading material, notebook and writing utensils, basic first aid kit, which includes Band-Aids, Moleskin, Ace Wrap, Gauze, Advil, Tylenol, emergency t packet. Emergency, if you don't know, is a, basically it's a, it's a heavy dose of vitamin C to help with uh, preventing coughs and colds and, and illnesses like that when you're traveling. Uh, cough drops, uh, baby wipes, even if you don't have kids, morale items, stuff from the kids, etc., flash drives, SD card reader, eyeglass repair kit and spare glasses, and work gloves. Um, I think it's awesome, and we probably should do um, a show on the practical everyday carry uh, bug-out style bag again. It's something we've done a bunch of, and sometimes I, I hesitate to go back and do a subject that over, you know, 11 years now we've done like 15 20 times but then I, I do need to realize we have new people coming in here every day looking for preparedness and that is one of the key um, key preparedness items that we all should not only have but constantly be taking a look at and saying you know is this serving my needs uh, how do I make this better okay so next up John and Moore Park who is like a one-man research department for me um, sent me an email And this was something, if John had sent me this, I probably wouldn't talk about it. Uh, cause I, but I did have a few smirks over the weekend when I heard little news reports on it. But it's, a, it's from CNN Politics. House passes sweeping budget and debt limit deal. The House of Representatives on Thursday passed a sweeping two-year budget and debt limit deal that would starve off the looming threat of a potential default on U.S. debt and prevent automatic spending cuts to domestic and military funding. You can read it all in CNN Politics. Um, I'm going to put a link to that article, but I'm not going to read it to you because I don't want you to get bored. I'll give you the, the, the cut and dry. It's pretty much the headline nails it. I mean, that, that's, that's it. 
But you know what? Uh, they actually have like a little one and a half minute video uh, along with this post at CNN. So let me, let me I'll go ahead and play that for you, and that'll uh, give you uh, an overview of what's in this bill that was just passed. And I'll come back and tell you what I think about it. And the uh, first voice you'll hear is uh, Mitch McConnell explaining why it's a good thing. <laughs> anyway, here we go. I'm confident we will. Congressional leaders projecting confidence that a two-year budget deal will have enough votes to pass. But some lawmakers are holding their breath that President Trump will stay behind it. We always hold our breath until something gets signed into law. Trump tweeting Monday night that the bipartisan plan had no poison pills and was a real compromise in order to give another big victory to our great military and vets. But there was no mention of it in his rambling speech today at a conservative team conference. The president's social media endorsement aimed at easing some concerns on Capitol Hill that he might back away from the deal at the last minute. I think it's a, it's a deal that we'll get through. It isn't everything we hoped for, but it got through the debt ceiling. The deal pushes off another fight over the budget and debt until after the 2020 election and authorizes $1.37 trillion in spending each year for the next two years. Republicans touting the $45 billion increase in military spending. From a military point of view, it's much needed. It's the best I think we could do. And Democrats satisfied with the $56 billion in non-defense spending increases. But nothing in the deal addresses the federal deficit, which is nearing $1 trillion. Cutting spending around here is like going to heaven. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody's quite ready to take the trip. Some conservatives not happy with the increased spending and ballooning deficit are already rejecting the compromise. Do you like it? Are you going to vote for it? <laughs> I like it. So the basics are everybody says it's probably not good enough, it's too much spending, it's going to increase the deficit, but we're going to do it anyway. Um, the Republicans are touting increased military spending. The Democrats are touting every other increase in spending other than the military spending. And, of course, they have risen the debt ceiling sufficiently that they won't have to talk, have this discussion again until after the election. And that's a win for Trump. Now, I want to explain what I mean when I say that. I mean that the fact that he won't have to talk about it and the Democrats won't be able to use it against him by making him shut the government down on the, on the lead-up to the next election, which is probably what they would do if they had that leverage, uh, is a win for him in the stance that he doesn't have to deal with it when he's running for re-election. It doesn't mean it's good or it's bad. It just means for him politically, that is a win, because no one will be talking about this particular compromise two years from now. The only thing I'll be talking about is what's gone on in the last couple of weeks. That's that's how elections get decided on what happens about 30 days before them. It's really the case. Like there's the overall feeling that people have, and again, you got to remember that 20% of the people who don't really know what they believe decide every election. 20% of the people that vote. All right, like then there's us that just don't vote because we're not playing this game anymore. But in the end, you got about of the total people that vote, you got about 40% of the people that if my dog Charlie was running as a Democrat, they would vote for him before they voted for a really solid middle-of-the-road Republican that agrees with them more than, than they disagree with them. And then there's another 40% 
that if my dog Max was running as the Republican under the same circumstances in reverse, they would vote for the damn dog. And if if I if they were both running, they'd each tell you why the other dog was bad for the country and going to destroy it. I mean, that's that eighty percent of voters they're there. Twenty percent of voters will change their mind, and. The issue with that 20% block is about half of them or 10% of them are completely wishy-washy and have no idea why they changed their mind. You got about 10%, and when I say 10%, I don't mean 10% of the total. I mean half of that group of 20% of the total that they're so close to the middle that they really do analyze and make a decision based on that. The other 10% vote on how they feel that day, who looks better in a suit, who sounded like they empathized with them more, who ran more commercials. I mean, literally, they're that wishy-washy. It's that 10% that really generally flips an election one way or another. And so those people are very subject to that last six weeks, those October surprises, etc. So just eliminating this is a reason for him to, quote-unquote, compromise on it. However, nobody really compromised here. Nothing changed. No big anything changed. Pretty much this was a status quo vote. And everybody gets some more money to blow. Everybody gets some more money to bring home with earmarks. Everybody gets, I mean, it's just, it is absolutely nothing changing. And what is actually striking about that for those that still believe in the system and will vote harder next time is this was done with incredible bipartisan support. There's the outliers, right? They vote no or don't like it or whatever. But in the end, those people are given cover fire by the people that will vote yes and know they don't have anything to worry about. This is proof that it doesn't matter whether the left's in charge or the right's in charge, the giant's going to keep going in the same direction. And I've been saying this lately to people, and some of them get it and some of them don't, the only way the giant can move forward is for the left and the right foot to be traveling in the same direction. And that's all that's going on in the political spectrum today. All of these really far left, uh, heavy on, full on socialist Democrat candidates, all they exist for, because they ain't going to win, all they exist for is to make the somewhat centrist leftist Democrat of today look reasonable and allow the right side candidates to move more left. Everything's moving left because there is no left and right in American politics anymore. What you have is bigger government. And and, and it will in, in the way that we use leftist in a negative connotation, that's what we're talking about. Well the right is making no effort whatsoever to make government smaller. I mean, they might have more talking points you agree with if you're of that political bent, but they're not making government smaller. The government's grown as much under Trump in the time he's been here as it did under Obama in the time he was there. Yeah, Trump slashed a lot of regulations and stuff, but <laughs> yeah, that's good. I actually see, I'm actually, that would be one of the things I'd say, because even when Obama was president, people say, well, has he done anything right? Yeah, here's some things he did right. And, and cutting regulation, I'm always for that. Cutting back government. Controls, I'm always for that. Less government, I'm always for that. But in the end, the amount of money the government spends and the number of departments they have and the number of things they do is the problem. And that hasn't changed at all. It's not going to. 
So in a world where you think Democrats and Republicans literally agree about nothing, what they agree about is that it's important for the government to stay in power and have as much power as possible and for it to grow every day. That's what they voted to do, to make government bigger and more powerful and cost more money. That's what they can agree on. They can't agree about anything, but they agree about everything. That's my take on it. Let's take another one. So this next one, this article is on switching jobs. It says a new study concludes it literally pays to switch jobs right now. Uh, this is written by Jack Kelly over on Forbes. He's usually a pretty solid writer for them. Uh, I'm going to actually read this one to you because I think it'll make the discussion of it better and more useful. Uh, here you go. It literally pays to switch jobs. A new study conducted by payroll giant ADP reports that employees who accept a new job at another company receive more money than their former peers who remain. The higher premiums currently being offered indicate that the record high level of employment and robust economy continues to grow. To attract top talent in this hot market, companies are starting to recognize that they need to pay a premium. According to an analysis of the data by Bloomberg, the biggest beneficiaries are job hoppers in the information industry who realize an annualized 9.7% wage growth, construction workers who moved average 8.7%, and professionals in business services average 8.3% premium. While those who stayed at their companies earned about a 4% increase in pay, on average, those who chose to switch jobs enjoyed compensation growth of 5.3%. So when we take, just, I'm going to pause for a second to understand that, like, they gave the, the biggest examples there with 9, 8, and 8 on the increase, and then the average person who stayed got 4. The person who moved, on average, got 5.3% more. So that, that takes everything into account. Back to the article. The only large groups that suffered from falling wages when changing jobs were in the leisure and hospitality sectors. Small businesses are suffering as they are not able to financially compete with salaries offered by bigger adversaries in the war for talent. Separately, data produced by the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta's wage growth tracker, which includes both public and private sector, Arrived at the same results as ADP. The study reveals that uh, job switchers' income jumped 4.5%, the second best pace of a 10-year economic expansion. Anecdotally, in my recruiting practice, placing professionals on Wall Street and financial services over the last 20 years, I've seen firsthand increases of 10 to 20% on average for people who switch jobs. So he's saying over uh, 20 years, his lowest average increase is 10%. Now, he's a headhunter, and that tells you something that's germane to what I'm going to talk about here in a second. The spread is due to the hotness or coldness of the market at a particular time period, supply and demand imbalance of candidates and other factors. With these large margins, it was highly attractive for people to jump ship. Many moved a number of times. Let's say there was a person earning 100k and then received a 120k offer. A year later, she could embark upon another job search and request about 150k. Meanwhile, those who stayed put... Uh, had what we recruiters refer to as a loyalty discount. The woman who uh, maybe five years later after several moves earns on 150k plus bonuses, whereas her former peers earned on average about a 3% yearly increase, which places them at about 115k. That's really important here. 
Forward-thinking companies such as Amazon have enacted plans to retain top talent. This month, Amazon announced a $700 million retraining program to build pathways to careers for its employees. The training programs will focus on fast-growth areas such as healthcare, machine learning, manufacturing, robotics, computer science, and cloud computing. The company contends that this initiative will keep people from leaving as they will learn new skills and grow within the organization, earn more money in the long run. I've encountered many people who elected not to switch jobs knowing that they'll earn far less than their colleagues who move on. They claim it's not worth the risk of entertaining the unknown, having to prove themselves all over again, and stress of embarking on new job search. They claim that the company, similar to Amazon, will try to help them grow within the firm. While employees rationalize remaining, the evidence strongly signals that financially rewarding to switch jobs at this time. The reason I read that, It's because it so backs what I wanted to talk about with here. It isn't just about if I take this new job, I'm going to increase my wages this year by, let's say, 8% instead of the 4% standard raise my company would give me. If that was it, if that was it, well, it may not be worth doing because you do have to prove yourself all over again. And generally speaking, when we move over, we try to move up And we also end up in places where we have to develop new skill sets. So it's not like we're doing... Very seldom do people go do the exact same job. The company's differences in how they um, manage or how their systems run or how their procedures work or how their approval... like Even that, in very similar positions, will have a great deal of difference in, in what you have to do, which is good, and I'll get to that in a second. But if it was just you know making 4% more than staying put, uh, because you do have a tendency when you're at a company over time, if you're in the right position, to become less and less likely to lose your job. However, I've seen people that were you know a year away from locking in a retirement let go in corporate downsizing out of this audience. So that's also a fantasy in some ways. But it is the incremental nature Um What you have to realize is that when you stay put in a company, unless there is a clear pathway of advancement in that company, where not only do wages increase, but responsibility and knowledge, etc., and unless you're at least keeping pace or exceeding the average pace, unless that's the case, you're on an escalator in a company. And unlike those escalators at train stations that are really steep, it's a pretty shallow escalator. It's more like one of those moving walkways at an airport, but it goes slightly uphill. And it means you and everybody else are on that escalator moving at that constant slow increase. Of course, your cost of living on the back end is increasing, and if you're having a 4% increase in wages, and at the same time you're having a 2.5% inflation, you only have a 1.5% increase in wages, and that angle's even shorter. When you are moving over to move up, and every time you move over, you are locking in kind of a new baseline of what your value is, assuming you don't get your ass fired, right? Because that'll shit can what the, that, that you were justified that price. If you're getting paid $120 right now, a, a competitor assumes, well, you must be earning it or they would get rid of you. So you are using... An ascender while other people are using a really shallow escalator. What I mean by that, when you, you know, do climbing and rappelling and stuff like that, there's a device called an ascender. And the way that works and allows people to, to climb that maybe otherwise wouldn't have the strength to do so is it's a one-way deal. 
So you pull yourself up with a rope, and that rope goes through that ascender, and that rope will allow the center to go up but not down. And so you, as you go up, it's like you're locking in at that next level, and now you're starting from a higher point when you go to lift yourself again. And you're able to move up. And the, what makes you on an ascension path versus a trolley going slightly uphill really slow is that each time you make a move, you're adding to your CV, your resume, whatever you want to call it, and you should be adding skills as well. So let's say that if I'm making $100,000 a year, just to make the numbers easy, and I would get a 5% raise this year for my company and go to 105%. But by being strategic, and see, I think when you start telling me you're moving for 8%, you're not negotiating hard enough. See, I think you should be getting 10%, 15%, unless the opportunity is huge on the learning side. I've taken pay cuts for more learning and to fill out a resume. But let's say that you are moving in the same niche, but you're moving up and getting more skills. So now we move from 100 to 115. We get a 15% increase, and we get all the new skills to go with it. A couple of years later, that person that moved up to like 1719 on the other side, that other person at 115 has gotten their regular raises too, so they're up in the 120 plus range. When they're shopping themselves out, they don't just have a higher baseline to start with. They have two positions, Tier 1, and they have a whole new list of skills and bullet points of things they can do and that they have done and projects they've managed and accomplished, etc. And you just have the same shit for the same number of years over and over and over again. You don't have anywhere near that progression. And they look like a hard-charging up-and-comer, and they want them. And then there's the other side of this. When an employer hires you and you work for them for a period of time, I don't care who they are, I don't care how benevolent they are, I don't care how committed they are to retaining Cal, I don't care any of that shit, the people that actually make the decisions about whether you get a raise or a promotion begin to take you for granted. They really do. They begin to take you for granted. And worse, on some level there can be, if you are really a hard charger, They start to see you as a threat, that you're going to not only enter their level, but bypass them. So maybe it's not so good if Tom gets a really great review this time around, because, well, you know, there's a couple of ways that works. One, he could up past me, and I could end up working for him. Uh, two, I, if he moves up, even if he's not in a different department or something, I lose this person. That's the Dilbert theory. You give your best employees... So-so reviews so that nobody else wants to steal them from you. So there's that too. But when you're moving over, see, when somebody's looking to hire you, what they're saying is, I need this, and I don't have it. If I had this, I wouldn't be hiring anybody because there wouldn't be an opening. And the more you make them feel like you can give them what they're looking for, the more valuable you become. Because... When they give an employee a raise of 4%, let's say, or 3% or 2% or whatever the hell it is in that company, they feel like, oh, well, you got yours. You got yours. Like, you should be happy. That's what I got. And see, that's the other thing. You're probably working for somebody that gets the same kind of raise. Who's working for somebody that got the same kind of raise? Like, it's good enough for me, it's good enough for you. When somebody's trying to steal you, well, now, if I give them too low a number, they're going to say no. They have the ability to say no. They know that you're not going to not show up for work tomorrow because you get, only got a 4% raise. 
you might leave, but you won't leave tomorrow over a 4% raise. A person trying to hire you needs you at a desk or at a position or running a project next week, and there's no one there to do it, and they think you can. And if they give you the wrong number, you might say no. And I've been saying this a long time, but the days of our grandparents of being loyal to the company and the company being loyal to you and working 30 years and getting a gold watch and a retirement program, uh, 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 party are over. And in general, they should have been over 30 years ago. This is how people say to me, how did you get so much done in your career so young? This is how. If I could make more money or learn something new, I moved. The second that I could. The second that I could. And the number one thing people say about that is, well, then a company looks at you and says, well, look at all this movement. Why do you move so much? And my, you know, my response, I've been asked that twice in interviews, and my both times I responded with the exact same response. You know, I understand that, but I'm someone that's looking to further my career, and I've done a great job for everybody I've worked for. And you can check my references. I'll be happy to provide you with references to all the companies I've worked for in the past. But if there wasn't all this movement, if I hadn't done all these different things, you and I wouldn't be sitting here having this discussion right now. We're having this discussion because I was willing to do these things to further my career and get more experience. And then I shut up. And both times I basically got the answer of, well, that's true. Okay, so then we're done, right? I didn't say that, but that, that's where we're at. Is that we're, we're done with worrying about that objection. You knew that when you set this interview up, and I know that you know that. And what I'm worried about now is, are you good enough for me? That's the attitude you have to have when you're doing this. You can't, you can't put it that way. If you're that arrogant, they will not hire you because they know you're going to be a problem going in. They're not worth it, right? Unless you're really some hotshot salesperson or something that knows walking in with like a $30 million book of business. Then they'll probably deal with your shit. Otherwise, that's too much. You have to exude that attitude but speak with humility. And you have to have reasons that you want to be there, and you have to have reasons for them to want you there. And I've always looked at it this way. If I'm talking to somebody to do a job, And that job is in some way critical. If it's a job, there's 50 people answering phones, and I can train any monkey off the street to read a script and do that, then I'm not that worried about it. You just hire people and fire the ones that don't work until you get enough. That, and that's how everybody manages that level of person. When it's something that's actually key and critical to the business, then this is my thought. Would I be concerned if this person went to work for one of my direct competitors, would that bother me? Would I be like, man, I'm, I don't want that person over here at, you know, if I'm basically Sprockets, I don't want them at Cogswell Cogs. If, if I feel that way, the only thing that will prevent them from coming to work for me is that my budget is not sufficient to satisfy them. I will go up to the top of my budget for that position with that individual if I am afraid of them working for my competitor. If I don't care if they work for my competitor, they'll get the median on what that position is, on what I think they're worth, and that's it. And if they don't do it, I don't care. I'll find somebody else. 
Because even in something that's a little bit demanding or a little bit in short supply, I could find somebody else. I'm only going to the top for that person when I don't want them going somewhere else. And if you could sell yourself that way and move over every couple years to move up, you can progress very, very quickly. And then you'll probably find a company that you want to work for long term. You'll probably find someone that's willing to invest in you and you're willing to invest in them because now I can live a life of my choosing. Now I make enough money that money's not a problem. We can talk about loyalty when money's not a problem anymore. We can talk about loyalty when I know that I should be in this position in 18 months and everything tells me I'm going to be there and when I do everything I'm supposed to be, I end up there. Then we can talk about loyalty. And when that new position comes, not just with more money, but new skill sets and career development, we can talk about loyalty. But when I'm sitting here doing a job, I could do it in my sleep, and you're talking about paying me 3% more, giving me a dollar an hour raise or something like that, and I know that I'm going nowhere in the next two years, and I know that I'm not going to learn anything new. I am out the door, and you should be too. And the studies, multiple studies here, actually conclude the same thing. And I'm going to tell you that I think their numbers are low. Um, I've had movement of 30 to 40% in base salary. Base salary. So commission incentivized positions, and I'm talking 30 to 40% in base And that's knowing how to be a skilled negotiator, being good at what you do, developing a reputation, having solid references. When they go, well, can you provide some references? How many would you like? How many would you like? You know, would you? And, and today, see, I, I predate things like LinkedIn. If I were in the, in the career field today, I would be hitting up every single person that I interact with for endorsements on LinkedIn, and not the easy one where they just click a button and say, I endorse you for the skill of marketing, right? I mean, I would be, can you write up something for me? Because there, go look. You know, here's, here's you know, 1,800 connections in the industry, and here's 200 references sitting on my LinkedIn profile, not cheese, cheesy ones, ones that mention specific projects. I would be building a portfolio of projects. I'd be doing what they teach you to do. I can't remember the name of the company now, but the company that I talked about um, where they have the, in, the in, in, internship boot camp type thing. I would be doing that for myself, showcasing whatever I could without compromising the integrity you know, of, of giving away trade secrets and stuff like that. But I would be absolutely building a marketing portfolio for myself. And this is how you're going to have to do things to get ahead. Because there's going to be less employment opportunities in the future. Right now, everything's exploding, just like I said it would. Because it has to to get where we're going next. But as we get there, you're going to start to see more and more automation replace this stuff. And as it does, all these people that are doing really well right now, they're going to find out the loyalty thing is not really there. Because companies are going to make business-based decisions. And that's why some of the people at Amazon maybe are in the right place, because if they're really going to be teaching people about machine learning and stuff like that, well, then that's the skill you want to develop. So if I had an opportunity right now, if I was in a technical field, and I was doing things I could do really, really easily, and I actually had to take a little bit of a pay cut to really learn about developing these systems that are going to put other people out of work, I want to be that guy. 
Not because I'm an evil bastard, because somebody's going to do it. And then I'm going to get to a point where maybe I am almost a mercenary. Because they just said these small companies can't be the big ones. Well, that means they're going to be the huge opportunity for leaning out. And I can see people in the future going, well, what I'll do is I'll come into your company and increase your revenue and lean out your expense for 3% of what I save you annualized over 10 years. And when we're talking $10, $20 million companies, how many of those do you need to build passive income with? That is going to be a thing in the future. Hired guns that have so optimized this skill set, they can scale it down or up. And this is the same formula a friend of mine used in a totally different way. Going into government contracts where the guy bidding the job is already in the hole, they're going to lose $2 million, and says, okay, you're going to lose $2 million, I'll take over the job. And instead of losing $2 million, you're going to lose a million. For that, I want a quarter million dollars. So you're going to lose $1.25 instead of $2 million. But you already know you're going to lose $2 million. And if I don't come through, you don't pay me. That can be now taken and automated. That's what's going to go on, guys. I'm telling you. So move over, move up, develop the skill set, develop a, develop a marketing platform around yourself. And those of you that are going to go to college and go that route, I don't care what you're studying, take some marketing courses and not like marketing analytics and stuff like that, unless that's going to help you. Generalized marketing and then learn how to make yourself the product and market yourself. Because no matter what you do, that has value. So here's another one from the MeWe chat this morning. Somebody who um, is gardening basically on decks, in fact calls themselves deck gardening gardener, on MeWe, um, said that they do a lot in containers because they don't have another option right now. So, you know, big pots and stuff. Sometimes they're pretty small. More containers in less space, more stuff. And so what are my thoughts on reusing the soil in these containers? And they felt that things like the roots in them and stuff like that would be bound up and maybe not make it worth doing. I actually don't see a huge value in dumping soil out and getting rid of it in this type of growing. Um, the place I know that it probably makes the most sense economically to do is in the microgreens business, especially if you're doing it commercially, that the yields drop enough when we're doing microgreens that you're better off, even if you're buying soil, to bring in new soil for every tray. Okay, fine. Um, a lot of that, though, I think stems from the fact that when people try that, what they do is they just replant into that tray. So that root mass is there, etc. And I think that if the process was done a little bit differently, i.e., we take that tray of soil and we dump it somewhere into a pile and we, we break it up until we have a pretty significant pile, we start building a new pile, and if we build a new pile, we pull from the old, I think those losses would go way, way down. Way, way down. Because the soil that is in a microgreens tray has given up almost none of its nutrients. Because microgreens take so little nutrient from the soil. However, it's been done, you know, the amount that's growing in that square foot, 
would normally be growing in uh, 150 square feet. It's it's a massive number of plants. It's still very, very small. And they're taking most of their growth energy from the seed itself. You know, it's maybe that last two days where you green them up under the lights that they're pulling anything from the soil. So we know there's a lot of soil nutrient left in there. Now, when we move to something like growing in garden pots and stuff like that, if we're using good growth practices, that soil should actually be, just like soil in the ground, getting better every year. So I've been growing in some containers now for my third year. But these are big containers, 100-gallon containers. But those containers, when you look at the health of the plants in them compared to my first-year ones, which are all great soil and compost and everything, the old ones look better, and it stands to reason. There's microbiological life going on in there. Now, I think as, now let me talk about how I manage that. Every year, I start with that container pretty much full. And there's a lot of organic matter that goes into that. By the end of a season, all the little critters and composting processes and things that go on in nature have caused that soil to settle quite a bit. What I will do at the end of the season then is I cut out all my plants. Generally, I don't pull plants out unless they were diseased. So any diseased plants get yanked out. Any plants that weren't diseased, I just cut them off and leave the roots in the ground. And then I pull, I'll always have mulch, a layer of mulch. I'll pull my layer of mulch out of that bed. And then usually I'll till, if you want to use that word, I will till the top couple inches of soil with my fingers. If there's some bound root or something, I might take a, a small garden trowel or something and do that. But basically when I say till, I mean it's almost like I'm mixing a dry mix to make bread with my fingers. So I just loosen the soil up. I will apply... Um, something like a uh, like the Dr. Earth 444 fertilizer at that point, and I will bring in a new layer of really great uh, container mix. Whether that's a product I bought at uh, you know Lowe's or Home Depot, like um, that that um, Performance Organics for Miracle Grow, that stuff just blows me away. The quality of that. That's what I used for my top dressing this year. Um, but it could also be, you know, compost mixed with some other amendments from a, a bulk supply place or whatever. whatever it is that goes back on the surface. Then another sprinkling of uh, an organic solid compost goes down and any other amendments that I want to use at that point, And then the mulch goes back. And so that layer keeps being added to the top every season. And the funny thing is, even in a container of that size, it's not that big, 100 gallons. And, you know, the bottom eight inches of it is full of rock because they're wicking beds. It seems to drop about the same two to three inches every year. So all that new soil's coming in there. And then all those little soil organisms going through the winter are going down there and eating roots and stuff like that. So now if you're growing in pots and smaller containers, I can see where that might not happen. So... What about a hybrid approach? Now, I, I, we've done this, and it seems to work really well. So we're done for the year with an annual that's in that pot. So let's go ahead and, and cut that annual, and let's dig out about half of the container mix. And let's put it in a pile somewhere. Okay? And let's do that with all our containers. So maybe we have one big tub or something, all that excess soil goes in. Now let's bring in some fresh stuff, some new organic material, a uh, new bag of container mix, whatever it is that we're using. Let's bring in, let's say, 
look at the amount you have sitting there and bring in about 30% to 40% of that volume, and let's mix that up. And then let's go back into the containers with that. Because what this does is it allows that lower layer of root mass and all that organic matter, all those critters that are living in there. There's as much critters living in that soil as there are in the ground, if you're doing things right anyway, to kind of be a Kickstarter to all that new stuff, which is also mixed in with its own Kickstarter. And we kind of get the best of both worlds that way. And that'll probably be more than you need to refill everything. Well, everybody that's a gardener is adding more every year. So then use that to start your next containers. I think that if you do that, you'll have really great results. With a caveat. If you have something that becomes highly diseased, especially with something that's soil-borne, like a powdery mildew or tomato blight or whatever, that particular container's dirt should go away. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be thrown away, but it shouldn't go in another container that you're growing vegetables in. You know, that maybe gets spread out on the ground in a very thin layer around a bush or a shrub somewhere uh, and let it do its thing that way. And then really clean that container out good. And I think if you do that, you'll have great results, and it'll cut your cost. That's the big thing. We don't need to be, you know, constantly replacing soil that's perfectly good, you know, every year. I don't think that really makes sense. And again, the larger the container, the less of a concern I think that you'll find this to be. And I, I, like I said, I really feel like my oldest containers, and when I dig that soil up, it is beautiful. It's more beautiful than anything I can get in a bag. And that's good soil management. So I think the other side of this, before we close it down, is you need to manage the soil in a pot or a tub the same way you'd manage the soil in a garden. You, know, you need to be adding things like worm castings and compost and amendments. Uh, there's nothing wrong with if you don't compost as a whole, taking things that are compostable, pulling your mulch back inside your containers, laying those things down and putting it right back on it. I mean, banana peels, potato peels, whatever. As long as it's not something that's going to create a disease problem or a pest problem for you, what you'll find if you have good worm activity and things like that in your, 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 your containers, you pull back some mulch and you put down a handful of potato peels and you cover it back with that mulch and water it in a little bit and you go back there a week later and you pull that mulch back there's nothing there you know it's either full of pill bugs or uh, worms or, or something like that and it's eating it and it's just gone and that's all the soil being natural soil just like it would be in the ground in fact it's better because the whole container is full of great soil it's not just a layer on the top so that's my approach to container gardening, and it's, it's the most productive thing we've done here, including with aquaponics blended into it. Last one today, I just thought it was an interesting perspective to examine. So Guy on MeWe says, moving to Florida, and in our budget, we're looking at either being able to live on the waterfront or live a little bit more rural and have some land. But we won't have any land at all if we live on the waterfront. So I'm like, define waterfront. Because that can be lakefront, it can be gulf front, it can be ocean front, it can be canal, whatever. And he said canal, you know, and that's that's the, the most affordable waterfront property there is uh, on a lot of coastal regions. If you want to actually be able to put a boat in the water and go out in the ocean, um, canals that connect to the ocean some way is generally the most affordable you can do, and they are generally small lots. So he actually gave me two example properties, and, and, and my thought was immediately, well, 
you ain't going to have the kind of garden and forest and food forestry and stuff like that um, in one of those houses that you could on an acre, let's say. But I bet you there's a lot of space that things could be grown, especially in a climate like Florida. So he sends me the picture, and there was a little small backyard. I'm like, I can see you know, containers there and garden there and how to do it. So the HOA, because you know you're going to have an HOA and something like that. doesn't get pissed off or whatever. And, and so in the end, what he actually has to decide is what's more important to him, living on the water or the place that he lives, right, as a whole. And the place that he showed me that was about an acre of ground had what looked like about a good quarter acre or so pond on it. I was like, man, I, I think that's, and I think if it was me, most likely, now I don't really know because all I've seen are some overhead pictures. If I had to pick between those two, I would gravitate toward the one-acre property. Now, here's the thing. When I said that, he said, yeah, that pond is nice, but there's a lot of mosquitoes. It makes a lot of mosquitoes, too. Ponds don't make mosquitoes. Puddles make mosquitoes. Swamps make mosquitoes. Now, maybe there's a lot of swamp land around there. It's Florida, right? So there could be tons of mosquitoes there, but ponds generally are not really suitable for mosquitoes because they're full of fish that eat them. So they're not the mosquito hellholes that we think of them. It's all the, it's the water that the minnows can't get into is where the mosquitoes like like to breed. If it, mosquito has a choice, and she can lay her eggs in an open pond, or a hoof print of a of a cattle, you know, of a bull or a cow, a stagnant hoof print with standing water in it, they'll lay in that that hoof print. That's where they want to be. That stagnant, stinky water has all the stuff that little mosquito larva needs to feed on and nothing to eat it. So, and if you're on the coast of Florida, you've got mosquitoes anyway. The damn thing's breeding the grass there. There's so much dew. Um, so, but my instinct was that was that was hinting toward I actually already know what I want. And that's something we have to be wary of and, and, and attentive to in these situations. Is there something you are already trying to talk yourself into? Well, that helps you if the decision's a wash, and it helps you be more honest if you really should be considering it. So the problem with the inland property was every time I want to put a boat in the water, we're going to have to load it up on a trailer and take it down to the water. And I'm going to tell you, that does limit how much you use a boat. But then the discussion of slips came up. It's like, my God, if I had to get a slip, it cost me $400 a month. I was like, whoa, really? Because a slip around here, like $1,200, $1,400 a month for a boat slip on a lake. Not on an ocean, not on a bay, not on some canal system where I can go out to the ocean or the bay. No, no. On like a 7,000-acre lake, I have to pay over $1,000 a month to have a boat slip. If I could have a boat slip for $400 a month here, And I know not everybody can say this, but if, I'm telling you, for me, if, if I could get a boat slip for $400 a month, get in my car, hop, hop my hobby ass in my, you know, hop in my car, drive up there, hop my ass in my boat, and just drive out and not have to deal with it, there would be a boat in a slip right now with my name on it. So then we got to look at the other side of this. What is the total cost? So the two properties are probably pretty similar, but I'm going to bet. The property tax on the waterfront property is probably higher. And then I'm going to bet the insurance on the waterfront property, even if it's not justified, is probably higher. 
So what is the real total cost of living in both of them? And you might not even find that it equals out, but let's say that the total cost of living is really $300 more to live on the waterfront. Well, then we're only paying $300 for that boat. Or we're only paying $100 for that boat. We've got to look at the total cost. And day-to-day life, what do you see yourself doing? You know, how do you, how, how do you feel about living in a place where there's your neighbor, there's your neighbor, there's your neighbor, there's your neighbor? Because that's how those canal homes are. Especially if you're not at the end, right? When you're in the middle, there's one across the street or across the canal from you, and then there's one on both sides of them, and one on both sides of them, and you can see them all. And then you got two people right up your butt on both sides of you, and then two more, and then one across the street. Because that's how they design those things, like kind of like keyways. You know, like keyhole garden style is what the pattern is. And so that's so they can put as many homes as they can with as limited infrastructure as they can install to keep costs down. When you look at developing you know, uh, subdivisions, you realize real quick why they do what they do. It, it, may, it doesn't make any sense when you look at it from a living perspective, but when you look at it from a cost of installation perspective, it makes total sense to develop subdivisions the way that we develop them today. When you start doing waterfront, you're talking about putting in canals and stuff like that. Boy, it really makes sense economically. So to me, man, see, I look at it as... Put an automated fish feeder on my little dock down there. Got my boat, and then got my crab traps and the water. And I—that's—I don't need to garden as much because fish come out the water and go into my belly. On the other hand, I personally don't think I could live with that many people that close to me. Not at this point in my life. You know, I want my dogs, I want some animals, and, you know, so I would probably gravitate toward the acre with the pond, and, and either I'm towing my boat or I'm getting a slip. And I have to say, at 400 bucks for a boat slip, you will probably get so much more out of your boat for that, as far as how much you'll use it. Plus not having to trailer it, plus not having to use the extra gas to tow it. You know, being able to, to go down and, and get in your boat and your little, you know, little sedan car versus your big uh, truck or what have you. Um, then there's the last thing. So I believe that the way that you design your life is you figure out what you really want to do. And then you figure out all the negative compromises because of it. And then you figure out how to mitigate those compromises. And that starts to make a A and B decision a little bit more complicated to get to, but a hell of a lot easier to make. Because I don't know what it's called, but I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say there's an Airbnb for boats. There's an Airbnb. There is something like Airbnb. I know there's one for cars. I just heard about it recently. But So there is some place right now where you can go online and say, I have this boat, and here's where it is, and here's what it's like, and you can use it for a day for this much money. Okay, and that there is some system in place along with that where there's a security deposit and all that stuff, and maybe you have a harbor master that holds a key or something. I don't know, but I guarantee there's some way to do this where that boat can go out for a day and come back and end up right where it's supposed to be, and everything's right. And if it's not, you have a, a way to recover the cost of fixing it, And that can probably make you between two and three hundred dollars a day at least, because renting a friggin' pontoon boat, a cheap ass pontoon boat, is expensive. 
let alone a boat. And you can put it where restrictions you want and whatever. If you can rent that boat two days a month, I think your slip's paid for. And if, you, if, if it kind of concerns you to rent your boat, again, you can be really picky, and you're not trying to make money. You're just trying to pay for the slip. And so that might mean you have to rent it a, a week a month in the busy season. And, you know, maybe some months you don't get it rented, but if you can rent it out 24 times a year, that slip doesn't cost any money anymore. So it, it won't require you to do a lot. So you can just get a job delivering pizzas and pay for your slip, but that sucks. You don't want to do that. You want, you're moving here for a lifestyle. You don't want to give the lifestyle up you're moving there for. But that's the approach I would take. I would look at all of that. And I would really look at, if I'm going to choose the, the landlocked model, I need the boat slip. Can I make the boat and the slip pay for the boat and the slip? Because then if you look at the total cost, you might figure out, if I can rent this thing four, four days a month, it covers the boat insurance, boat slip, and my gas for the boat. Then if you have a payment on it, maybe it's five or six, and you pay for the boat, too. And, I, I don't, again, I don't know what it's called. I haven't even looked it up. But I'll give 10 to 1 odds. There's a site where you can rent your boat by the day, and there is some way to set it up where it's very passive on your end as to how it works. Um, you can charge cleaning fees. That's the thing. You have complete flexibility in these platforms as to what you require in order for that boat to be uh, rented. And there's probably somebody where those boat slips are that makes a living checking the boats, handing out keys, and cleaning them up and reporting back to you. That's their whole thing. And what they cost is irrelevant because you build it into the service that you're providing. Well, those are my thoughts, and that's how I would handle that. If you guys have any ideas or thoughts on that, I'd like to hear it. And as I said, this really isn't a real estate question. This is a decision question. This is a lifestyle quotient question. How do we figure out every day we have to make a choice about how we're going to live, where we're going to live, what we're going to have? And then how do we figure out when we have to make that decision for whatever we're giving up, how do we recover it? And we won't always be able to, but if we do it most of the time, we change our lives. Because let's say even the full hundred bucks is not a, it's not an issue. Let's say the guy can just write the check, $4,800 a year, and it doesn't change the temperature of his, his, uh, the water in his pool, which the lake house had a really nice pool with a you know, Florida room, they call it, with it all closed in so the mosquitoes can't get you. That's about $50,000 over 10 years invested in even conservative investments. Over 10 years, it's probably $80,000, $90,000 added to a retirement account. So if we can recover it, we should even if we don't have to. That's how we get into a point where we win in life versus let other people dictate our lives to us. We don't stick to the A-B choice. We stick to the A-B choice plus how do I make A more like B and how do I make B more like A and how do I make either one of them cost me less money. In real money, by the way. And then once we're renting the boat out, every dime we put into the boat becomes a legitimate business expense against the income. I'm just saying. All right, with that, we have wrapped up another show. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, please consider helping to support our show. There's two ways you can really do that. One is become a member of what's called the Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more, sign up, use the discounts, get your money back. And if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, Uh, active duty or prior service as well as first responder, email me with Jack, email me with TSPC service discount in the subject line at Jack of the survival podcast.com. Tell me about your service in, uh, you know, a couple sentences or less. 
and I will get back to you with a discount code. The other way is you just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. You go there, you see all the stuff I've reviewed on Amazon, but as long as you start your shopping there, you help us no matter what you eventually buy. Here's what we got for you today, item of the day, though. It's the Black & Decker 20-volt lithium-ion pole saw. This is a chainsaw on the end of a long pole. It's an electric one. It is not a super hoss tool. It's not something that a professional uh, tree trimmer should go out and use on a daily basis. It will wear out if you use it at that kind of level of commercial use. For a person who's going to use it a couple times a month or a couple times a quarter or a few times a year, it probably lasts you as long as anything else ever possibly could. Uh, again, it uses 20-volt lithium-ion batteries for Black & Decker. So if you have other 20-volt uh, Black & Decker stuff, it's cheap. 75 bucks, and if you don't, you can get one with a charger and a battery. Uh, the way I found this a few years ago, we had to sell my father-in-law's house because he was moving to a memory care facility, and uh, we had decided that when we went to clean the house out and get it ready to sell, we'd take a couple limbs off a pecan tree in his yard, and this is just a cool thing you can do uh, to keep something in the family that's meaningful. Uh, he had planted that pecan tree with my son uh, when they bought the house. So what I had decided to do was to take some fairly large limbs from the tree and then they could be cut into smaller stock. And I had a friend with a wood lathe uh, turn them into pulls for like overhead lighting and ceiling fans and stuff and put them on chains. And then we gave them out to members of the family. So I just thought that was cool because then every time somebody reaches up and pulls that thing on that light or whatever, they can think of, of him and uh it's just a connection and it's always there and it fits right in and everybody has a use for them so that was the goal well when we got there i had my regular chainsaws and a ladder and i looked and there were no really good sized limbs that i could take down safely without a pole saw so we went down to lowe's home depot whatever was out there and i found this thing for like 130 bucks and i'm like well if it sucks i'll use it it'll be good enough And I'll just return it and say it sucks. Right? So I got none to lose. So I bought it, and I'm like, no, I'm keeping this. And I use it all the time now uh, for pruning out trees and for topping trees that need to be felled and what have you. And it's really great for what it is. And it, it's surprisingly powerful for what it is as well. Again, it's made by Black & Decker. It's a lithium-ion pole saw. And I'm going to tell you that it is the kind of thing that if you're going to do your own work like this, it can save your life. Now, you've got to be careful. Any, any chainsaw used, you better know what you're doing. But I worked as, as a kid for a couple uh, summers for a company called Esplenda. They're one of the bigger tree trimming services. And they had a contract with the state of Pennsylvania for trimming trees around, um, like power lines and stuff like that. And I saw over those two summers two people get hurt pretty bad, pretty gnarly injuries, who were also people that when they were going to go do what they were going to do, said, don't worry about it, it'll be fine. Uh, and, and at least one of those two would have definitely not happened if the idiot would have, would have got the pulse all we had, right? So there are things that should not be done hanging out like with one arm holding a chainsaw on one arm. That is not something that should ever be done, but up in a tree it really shouldn't. So I really recommend you consider this if you have use for it, and it is perfect for the small-scale homesteader. That's what it's really, the suburban homeowner to the small-scale homesteader, this thing is awesome. Check it out. Again, really cheap if you have other Black & Decker 20-volt stuff, you can buy the Bear Tool. And with that, let's talk about our song of the day today. We're going to have a, a week of music by John Denver. And I guess John Denver is not everybody's cup of tea. I've always loved John Denver and his music and the, the simple nature of his music. 
Um, this song is called Poems, Prayers, and Promises. And it's a song about growing older. And it's interesting because if you read the words and the lyrics or listen to the words and lyrics, it very much sounds like someone that's really kind of in the silver years, like even older than me, and I'm old as shit, right? Um, but then when you hear one line in it, he says something about, I'd like to raise a family. Now, I don't know if that's intended to be lamenting or forward-looking in this song. It's really open to interpretation. I will tell you the song was written in, in 1971, so if it's in any way autobiographical, it's only 28 years old when he put it out. And that's what I think this song really keys in on. You know, I talked about with career advancement, seeing your career advancement, if you're doing it the right way, moving over and up, being like an ascender. And like we kind of move up and we lock in, and then we can move up again and lock in again. That's a lot like our stages and phases of life that kind of catch us off guard. You'll find, especially you younger folks that are in your like early 20s, you'll hit a point you'll be like, oh my God, I'm 30. Holy crap. And like it'll be like, you were 30 yesterday, but today you just realized you were 30. And you'll think about what it really means and how much time you have left and all. And then it'll happen again when you're like 42 or something like that. And you'll almost have like this crisis moment, you know, somewhere around your 30th. And when you're 42, you're going to think how great it would be to be 30 again. And me heading for 50, 30? <laughs> yeah, man, give me those 20 years. Especially with what I know now. But see, life doesn't work that way. And what we need to really realize about life You can't lament the past. You can only learn from it. And there will come a day when you would love to be back where you are right now. But you are there now. Do something with it. Make the most of it. And then the song is just simple in its message as a whole. And it's the visual nature of being just happy with simple things. If you can marry those two things together... If you can realize the incredible opportunity that is now and tomorrow versus looking to the past and enjoy the most simple things in life, you will figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. I've been lately thinking about my life's time All the things I've done and how it's been And I can't help believing in my own mind I know I'm gonna hate to see it end I've seen a lot of sunshine Slept out in the rain Spent a night or two all on my own I've known my lady's pleasures Had myself some friends Spent a time or two in my own home And I have to say it now It's been a good life all in all It's really fine to have a chance to hang around And lie there by the fire Watch the evening tire While all my friends And my old lady Sit and pass a pipe around And talk of poems And prayers and promises 
in things that we believe in. How sweet it is to love someone. How right it is to care. How long it's been since yesterday. What about tomorrow? And what about our dreams and all the memories we share? Days they pass so quickly now, nights are seldom long. Time around me whispers when it's cold. Changes somehow frighten me, still I have to smile. It turns me on to think of growing old. For though my life's been good to me. There's still so much to do. So many things my mind has never known. I'd like to raise a family. I'd like to sail away and dance across the mountains on the moon. I have to say it now. It's been a good life, all in all. It's really fine to have the chance to hang around and lie there by the fire and watch the evening tire while all my friends and my old lady sit and pass the pipe around and talk of poems and prayers and promises. And things that we believe in, how sweet it is to love someone, how right it is to care, how long it's been since yesterday. What about tomorrow? What about our dreams and all the memories we share?